as has been said, and as you can see this morning, we are going to celebrate uh, the communion, also known as the Lord's Supper. It's very important that we understand what we are doing when we partake of communion. I know that we do so on a regular basis, but this morning I wanted to take time to be sure that uh, we don't misunderstand uh, what is taking place as we uh, celebrate this wonderful ordinance that was given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal of this morning's message is to prepare us for the partaking of communion by a thorough explanation of its significance. So I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, if you have not yet turned there. And I'm going to be working through this in rather great detail, phrase by phrase, in some instances word by word, uh, to give us again a thorough understanding of what we are doing when we partake of communion. So first of all, the explanation of the institution or the establishment of communion. How did we come to celebrate communion in the first place? Well, the answer is that Jesus himself established communion. If you notice 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it reads as follows. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So the instruction that we're about to receive, the Apostle Paul says, came directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Instruction from him. And that same instruction was given to the Corinthians and then ultimately to us. For it tells us in verse 23, what I also delivered to you. So it is the words that Jesus gave to Paul, that Paul gave to the Corinthians, and has now come down to us even these many years later. We are told the communion was established on the very night that Jesus was betrayed, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed. Of course, that night was Passover. Passover was rooted in the history of Israel when they were delivered from the bondage of Egypt and uh, were able to uh, begin their journey to the promised land. Jesus, as the Passover lamb, was crucified during Passover. The passage before us brings to our attention that it was the very night in which Jesus was betrayed, that is, betrayed by Judas. So why does it emphasize the night in which Jesus was betrayed as opposed to the Passover? For the Passover was so significant and uh, in the forefront of the history of Israel. Well, the answer is that we might have a proper perspective on the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus instituted communion before he died, it's important to keep in mind, before he died, Jesus is entering into this celebration with the apostles. Jesus did so in order to explain to them the significance of what was about to happen. Jesus, the very next day, is going to be crucified on a cross. And it was essential that they understood what was taking place in the crucifixion. They needed to understand that there was more at work here than just the dastardly deed of Judas 
or even the activity of the evil one. There was much more involved. And so Jesus gives this celebration to his disciples to explain the reality of what was taking place. If you look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, he said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So he is explaining the reason and purpose for his death in the celebration of communion. What is very important to keep in mind is that Christ's death was all a part of God's plan. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and delivers the famous message in which he says this, and I quote, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by hands of lawless men. So there were many factors that went into the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. There was the work of Judas. There was the work of the evil one. There was the work of the Roman government. There was the work of the Jewish leaders, the high priests and the uh, Pharisees. But underlying it all, the scripture says, was the determinate counsel plan of God. That God had a reason and a purpose in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't just a martyr in the sense that uh, he died as an example, but his death was actually efficacious. It actually achieved the purpose and plan of God. So number two, explanation of the enactment or conducting of communion. There are four verbal ideas surrounding Jesus' serving of communion. Jesus is the one who serves communion to his disciples. And there are four activities that are mentioned. First, Jesus took bread in 1 Corinthians 11.23. Comes at the end of that verse. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. The bread represented the body of Christ. Verse 24. And we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. Okay, so the, the bread represents the body of Christ. I will say much more about that in just a few moments. Then secondly, there's the Jesus, Jesus gave thanks. Verse 24. And when he had given thanks, and when he had given thanks, perhaps, uh, depending on what your church background is, you may have heard a, another term for communion or the Lord's Supper. You may have referred to it, have heard it referred to as the Eucharist. The Eucharist. Uh, the word Eucharist is simply a uh, transliteration of the Greek word Eucharisto, which is simply the word to give thanks. To give thanks. So here, the Lord Jesus Eucharistoed, if you will, he, he gave thanks. And so there are churches that refer to the communion as the Eucharist, the, the giving of thanks. 
But what we should keep in mind here is that this isn't just some kind of perfunctory prayer. When before you eat, you offer up a, a prayer. Uh, that can get pretty, as I say, routine or perfunctory. I've heard people, you know, even argue about, well, you know, when do you have to pray? Do you have to pray before you eat a candy bar or whatever? The idea is just giving thanks to God. But unfortunately, sometimes it can become pretty rote. I must admit, in my own life, there are occasions when uh, I'll be sitting down at a meal and I'll look at my wife and say, did we pray? Did we pray? I don't remember having prayed. That is more than just Alzheimer's. That is just a, a reality that, because uh, I did it when I was young, too. Uh, that, uh, you know, that it can become old hat. And I've always thought to myself, if, if you can't remember praying, it wasn't worth very much, so you ought to pray again. Uh, but uh, this isn't that. This isn't just habitual or routine, but it is the actual giving thanks by Jesus for what he is about to partake of. Now think about that for a moment. This is not the apostles giving thanks. This is not the disciples. He doesn't call upon them and say, would you give thanks for this communion they're about to partake of? It is Jesus giving thanks. And what is he giving thanks for? His death. He's thanking God for the opportunity to distribute to the disciples the elements that represent his body and his blood. He is giving thanks for the opportunity that is his to go to the cross. Which teaches us the, the voluntary nature of Jesus' sacrifice. And the will that he had that on the night in which he's betrayed, just think about that, on an emotional human level. And remember, Jesus is both God and man. And imagine one of your closest followers is going to do the dastardly deed of betraying you. And as he has that in the forefront of his mind, on the night in which he was betrayed, he gave thanks. He gave thanks. What a lesson to us, first of all, on the nature of thanksgiving. The Bible says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. But uh, sometimes it's easier to give thanks than others. But Jesus is rejoicing in what his death is going to accomplish. That it wasn't purposeless. It wasn't meaningless. But it was significant. It was important. It was in the plan and will of God. And so he gave thanks. Third, Jesus distributed the bread. Verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. This do in remembrance of me. Uh, little thing to keep in mind here is that the breaking of the bread refers to the distribution of the bread. Jesus did not say, this is my body which is broken for you. He said, this, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. So when it says he broke it, it simply means that he broke off a common loaf. He has a common loaf and he's breaking off pieces and handing it to his disciples. It is not symbolic of his body being broken. In fact, the scriptures emphasize the fact that Jesus' body was not broken. 
In John chapter 19, verse 31 to 34, we read this. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So what the scriptures teach us is that on the day of the crucifixion, there are, of course, uh, three crucifixions that are taking place at the same time. It is Jesus and two thieves, one on either side of Jesus. And it says that the, it was the night of preparation, which was a holy night. So the, they wanted these deaths to occur before sunset so that they could observe the Passover. That is the Jewish people. And so what they were doing was breaking the legs of the three individuals that were crucified. The reason they broke the legs was because the actual uh, means of death on a cross was the causation of death was asphyxiation. You died because you couldn't breathe any longer. One of the agonies of the cross is as you were stretched out and uh, have, have you seen the pictures of the cross? Uh, there was a little shelf there at the bottom. That was for your feet to rest. And it was so that you could push up with your feet in order to breathe. Because as you hung down and as your breathing would become more and more shallow, you wouldn't be able to breathe. And so you'd push up with your, with your whole body in order to be able to take a breath. So in order to bring about a quicker death, they would break the legs. And so you would immediately suffocate. Well, they came to the two on either side of Jesus and... They broke the legs of the two on either side of Jesus so that they would die. And they came to Jesus, and he was already dead. He'd already given up his spirit. And uh, they kind of marveled that he was dead already. And just to make sure that he was really dead, they uh, stuck a spear in his side, and uh, out came uh, the blood and water. The scripture points out that this was all a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. John 19.35, who, he who saw it bore witness, his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. It was very unusual for a person to have been pierced on the cross. So this is a unique aspect of Jesus' death, uh, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He did not have his legs broken, and in fact, he was indeed uh, pierced through. So when it says that he broke the bread, it's just simply that he distributed the bread. Then it tells us what Jesus said. He uh, interpreted the significance of communion. Verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, and said. So let's look at what Jesus said. He explained 
the symbolism or meaning of communion. He's going to tell his disciples what this all means. Jesus explained the significance of communion to his disciples, and Paul summarizes what Jesus said. So what did he say? First of all, Jesus said, this is my body, verse 24. This is my body. What does that mean when Jesus said, this is my body? The expression has been a source of much controversy down through the church ages, and uh, different denominations, different groups have different answers to that question. The Roman Catholic view is known as uh, the view of transubstantiation. Okay, trans meaning change, uh, substantiation meaning substance, change of substance. Uh, the Catholic Church teaches that during communion that the uh, wafer and the wine actually become the very body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That there's a mystical change that takes place and that it actually becomes the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and the very blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's known as transubstantiation. Martin Luther came along and of course he's known for the 95 Theses and uh, putting them on the door of Wittenberg. Well, Martin Luther came along and did not agree with the Catholic Church's teaching on many subjects and including the doctrine of transubstantiation. And so Martin Luther and Lutherans today teach the doctrine of consubstantiation. Con being with and substantiation being substance with substance. So what the Martin Luther's view was that in communion that the wafer or the wine does not actually become the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but takes on the properties of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean, take on the properties? Well, Martin Luther gave us an illustration that's very helpful. Martin Luther said that uh, as you put a poker into a fire, okay, you, you think of you know, stirring up a fire, putting a poker in a fire. He says, as you put a poker in a fire, a poker will take upon itself the properties of the fire, meaning it will get red hot. So it takes on the property of heat. It takes on the property of, of glowing. It takes on the property of even color, of becoming red. He says it takes on the property of the fire, but does not become the fire. Martin Luther said that's what happens in communion. That the wafer, the wine takes on the properties of the physical body of the Lord Jesus Christ, but does not actually become the physical body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there is a third view. That is the view of the Bible Fellowship Church and many Protestant churches, and that it is a memorial. That it is not literal that Jesus would want us to understand that this is his literal body, and this is his literal blood that we're partaking of, but it's symbolic. It's representative of his body, his blood. They are symbols of which there is no physical reality to. They are simple emblems 
representing the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we have here is a metaphor. Uh, a metaphor, if you're English class, if you remember a simile is a comparison using like or as. A metaphor is a comparison not using like or as. So it is Jesus saying, this is like my blood. This is as my blood. This is like my body. <clears throat> For me, it becomes rather simple. Picture this. Okay, you gotta, you got to put this in historic context. Jesus, the Bible says, he, he took the bread, he broke it, distributed it, handed it to his disciples and said, this is my body. Now when he says this, he is standing before them. When he says this, he is physically handing to them this emblem. Okay, so I submit to you, if you are there receiving communion by Jesus' hand and he says, this is my body, you're going to understand that it is a metaphor. You're going to understand that he's saying this represents my body. His body's in front of them. Okay, so he is simply saying to them, here is a representation of my body. And if you really want to get technical, he says the cup is my blood. Nobody thinks the cup becomes the blood of Christ. They think that it's the wine or the grape juice that becomes the blood of Christ. Okay, so anyway, our view is that it represents the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Notice verse 25. In the same way, meaning the prayer and all that we just talked about. In the same way, he took the cup also after saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. The cup symbolized or the establishment of a new covenant. As you think of your Bible, as you think of your Bible, your Bible is broken up into two unequal parts. The first part is about two-thirds uh, excuse me, uh, the uh, latter part is about one-third of the whole Bible. The first part is two-thirds of the Bible. We divide up, and we call it Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament, New Testament. Testament is a synonym for covenant. The Bible is divided up into Old Covenant, New Covenant. Now, there are many covenants in the Scriptures, but there are two primary covenants. The first covenant is the giving of the Ten Commandments, the given the law of God. In Exodus 24, 7, it reads, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The cup symbolized the acceptance with God that came through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If he says in verse 25, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So there were two covenants, old covenant, new covenant. That which was essential to the old covenant was because it was broken, 
Because people did not do what God said that they were to do, they were to offer sacrifices. They were to offer up bulls and goats and rams as a means of having their sins forgiven. But again, they just pointed to something else. Because the Bible made it clear that, that goats and bulls and rams can't take away sin. But that forgiveness that had to be experienced was foreshadowed through these, these sacrifices. The new covenant is established, and I'll tell you what those, the, the essence of the new covenant is in just a moment. But the significance is, when he says, this is established in my blood, it is the basis for the forgiveness for failing to keep the covenant. That we now experience forgiveness through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the most profound aspects of the new covenant is the reality. There are just so many things that point to the reality, the, the centrality, the truth of the scriptures. And one of them is the fact that in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. And from 70 AD on, there has been no sacrifice for sin. Judaism doesn't work without sacrifice. Judaism makes no sense without sacrifice. The whole Old Testament system can't work without sacrifice. God in his sovereignty demonstrated the reality that the Old Covenant was done away with by the destruction of the temple. No sacrifice is offered. Why? Because Jesus is the sacrifice for sin. His death is for the payment of what uh, we have uh, failed to be obedient to God. Uh, this new covenant is described in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. It says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. In the Old Testament, the law was written on two tables of stone, the Ten Commandments. God says, I'm going to do something now that's unique. I'm going to write the law on your hearts. Meaning that he's going to place within us a desire to be obedient to the law of God. That he is going to do a work in us that we are going to want to honor and serve him. He goes on to say, I will be their God and they shall be my people. In that covenant where it says that he will be our God, it means that he will love us, he will provide for us, and he will protect us. When it says that we are his people, that means we will love him, we will honor him, and we will serve him. And that's the essence of the new covenant. And Jesus said, it's established in my blood. Secondly, Jesus said, which is for you? Verse 24. Which is for you? The act of giving them the bread is to represent Jesus giving his body and his blood for each one of them. The atoning power of Christ's death is of infinite value and is offered to all. It is available to anyone who turns to Christ in faith, confession, and repentance. However, in these words of the Lord's Supper, Christ said he laid down his life for a particular group of people, his followers. His suffering atoned only for them. 
In order for your sins to be forgiven, you need to receive the gift of grace that God has given you in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died to pay the penalty of our sins, but we need to accept that gift. Communion is the picture of receiving that gift. Communion is saying, this is my body, which is for you. This is the cup, which is for you. And in taking that, you are symbolizing faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You're saying, yes, okay? I accept his blood on my behalf. I accept his sacrifice on my behalf. I accept that what he has done, he has done for me. That's the picture of communion. Then he said, this do in remembrance of me. The centrality of Christ in the Lord's Supper is the main point of the entire section that is to be done in remembrance of him. The activity of communion is to remind us of the activity of Jesus giving himself for us. It isn't just to remember a dead hero, but it is the actual participating in communion that is to remind us of what Jesus did in his death and in his resurrection. For notice, lastly, the explanation of the purpose of communion. Why do we take communion? Notice verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, here's the purpose, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me point out to you what it does not say. It doesn't say, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, your sins are forgiven. There is no transfer of grace. This is not a means of obtaining salvation. Your sins are not forgiven because you're going to eat a piece of bread this morning and you're going to drink some grape juice. That doesn't take away your sin. What takes away sin is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that you have, have trusted in him for your forgiveness of sins and this new relationship that you can have to God where God loves you, cares for you, provides for you, and you are going to love him, honor him, and serve him. Communion is just a symbol of that transaction. It's a representation. It says as often as you do this, you proclaim it. The purpose is to teach everyone that is around us. Our children are in view. Primarily, in the scriptures where there's a memorial, and he said this to in remembrance of me, it's a memorial. There are many memorials that are given in the word of God. For example, when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River, they're to take 12 stones. It's a memorial to remind them of what Jesus did. They're, excuse me, what God did in bringing them across the Jordan River. Also, you know, in uh, bring through the Red Sea. There are all these memorials. And the purpose of the memorials is so that when your children ask you, what does this mean? that you explain them. The purpose of communion is to raise questions. 
The purpose is for children to be watching and saying, Daddy, what does that mean? Mommy, why did you eat that bread? Why couldn't I take it? Why couldn't I drink it? Why did you drink it? Why did you eat it? It is meant as a teaching tool. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you teach, you instruct what the meaning of Christ's death and resurrection is. It is the opportunity for each and every person in this room to bear testimony and say, as you eat and as you drink, you are saying, I trust in Jesus. And I want everybody to know it. I'm believing in him. I want everybody to know it. Okay? So the purpose is to express your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, Jesus Christ is central to our faith. After all, we're called Christians. Christians means little Christ. Little Christ. Our faith and confidence is in Jesus. At the core of Jesus is his work in his sinless life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his return. And so it says in this verse, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. So we're to be participating in communion until Jesus returns. It's not a fad. <laughs> it isn't just something that, that uh, you know, now we do and you know, 20 years from now we're going to think of something a whole lot neater to do. And we're going to improve upon it or something. No, uh, communion has been handed down to us for the last 2,000 years. From the time that, that, that Jesus, the night before he died, to this very day. And by God's grace, we'll continue on until he returns. And then when he returns, there's no more purpose for communion. There's no more teaching. Everyone's going to know. Everyone's going to understand. Everyone's going to be aware. So this morning, we're going to be partaking of communion. Simply, let me say to you, if you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, we ask you to participate. Uh, we ask that you take that opportunity to say to everyone, I believe in Jesus as my Savior. I'm trusting in his death, his resurrection, uh, for my forgiveness of sins. If you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, we just ask that you refrain from partaking of communion. That's no rule that we've established if you read on in the passage. Uh, the scripture teaches us that we should not partake of communion if we don't know the Lord Jesus as our Savior. Because the whole point of the purpose of it is to show forth Christ's death till he comes. It's an opportunity for you to demonstrate your faith. I trust as we partake of communion this morning, you'll have a better understanding. And that uh, you'll want to profess your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. Let me say to you. That if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Uh, you simply can pray inaudibly. You don't even have to pray out loud. Just ask God to forgive you your sins based on Jesus' death and resurrection. Let me just say this to you. If there were any other way for it to be possible for us to be saved, God never would have sent his son to die on the cross. That would have been ludicrous. Why would God send his son? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. If there were some other way, 
If we could work our way, if we could earn our way, if we could be righteous enough, if there were some other way, if all religions resulted in eternal life, then there'd be no reason for Jesus to have died. He would have died in vain. There was purpose in his life, in his death. I say to you, your only hope of eternal life, your only hope of heaven is to believe in Jesus, his death, his resurrection for you, individually, personally, taking it, I believe this is mine. That's what we're offering you this morning. If you've never accepted Christ, just simply bow your head, say, Lord, I believe. I believe what he said. I believe that you died. I believe you died for me. I know, know I need forgiveness. I ask that you forgive me. And you can partake of communion with us this morning. It's as simple as that. Simple as that. I'll ask our brethren to come forward, and uh, they're going to distribute for us.